and turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 2. The book of Galatians chapter 2. I want to share a little story with you I first read in a book many years ago, and it goes like this. On Monday, Alice bought a parrot. It didn't talk. So the next day, she returned to the pet store. He needs a ladder, she was told. So she bought a ladder. But another day passed, and the parrot still didn't say a word. How about a swing, the clerk suggested. So Alice bought a swing. The next day, a mirror. The next day, a miniature plastic tree. The next day, a shiny parrot toy. On Saturday morning, Alice was standing outside the pet store when it opened. She had the parrot cage in her hand, tears in her eyes. Her parrot was dead. Did it ever say a word, the store owner asked. Yes, Alice said through her sobs. Right before he died, he looked at me and asked, don't they sell any food at that pet store? (laughs) I'll give you a moment to get over that. It's a bit dramatic. Think it through. When the gospel is not front and center in our lives as believers, we will quickly turn into Alice's parrot, starving in a cage full of pretty toys. Oh, friends, the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, front and center in our lives. And central to the gospel of the Lord Jesus is, of course, this glorious truth, the soul sufficiency of Christ. It has a wonderful ring to it, doesn't it? The soul sufficiency of Christ. And it is the Apostle Paul's central theme in his epistle to the Galatians. It is central. Why? Because that church is adrift. The church is in danger. There are dark clouds looming on the horizon. Why? Some have infiltrated that church. And they are suggesting, yes, the Lord Jesus died on the cross. Praise God, that's wonderful. Yes, He rose from the dead. Yes, He ascended on high. Yes, we must believe in Him. But, but... If you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to be received and welcomed by God, if you really want to be spiritual, then you must live under the law. And you must be circumcised. And you must follow all of those dietary laws and regulations. And you must observe all of those ancient feasts and festivals. You must come under the law. In order to be accepted in God's sight. And this is the heresy. Not too strong a word. That's what it is. It is a heresy. This is the heresy. That the Apostle Paul is confronting in this letter. And he insists upon. Line after line. Paragraph after paragraph. Chapter 1 right through to chapter 6. Upon the sole sufficiency of Christ. At a particularly important juncture, chapter 2, 
he appeals to a historical event, a little dust-up that occurred in the city of Antioch in Syria, just north of Israel. And Paul is living in Antioch, and Peter comes for a visit. And Peter knows the truth. Peter knows the gospel. Peter knows and affirms the soul sufficiency of Christ. But for some reason, in a weak moment, gripped by fear, overcome by the fear of man. We already heard of that this morning, didn't we? Overcome by the fear of man. He succumbs to the teaching of these Jews who insist that observance of the Old Testament law is absolutely necessary to be numbered among the people of God. And so what does Peter do? He distances himself from Gentile believers. Well, Paul has a few things to say to Peter. The first thing he says to Peter is this. Peter, brother, you are acting contrary to what you know. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves, you and me, Peter, you and me, you and I, we're Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. He's not saying the Gentiles are sinners, whereas they aren't. He is using phraseology, terminology, very common in that day to emphasize the fact we're part of that Old Testament covenant community. We were born under that law. We ourselves are Jews, yet even we know, verse 16, you and I, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. But through faith in Jesus Christ, so also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Peter, you and I know this. We know that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Peter, by refusing to eat with your fellow believers, Gentile believers, you are denying what you know to be true. Secondly, Peter, you are rebuilding what you have already torn down. Look what he says in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. As Jews, we are as much sinners as the Gentiles. And the gospel makes that clear. And we need to look to the Lord Jesus alone. Does that make Christ a servant of sin? Silliness, certainly not. I'll tell you who a servant of sin is, verse 18. If I rebuild what I tore down, if I've torn down that wall of partition, if I truly believe that the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant, He is the fulfillment of the law, if I now begin to deny that by insisting that Gentiles essentially become Jews in order to obtain a right standing before God, I am rebuilding what I had formerly torn down and I prove myself to be a transgressor. I am stepping outside of the revealed will of God. Peter, do you not understand this? You are trying to rebuild what you already tore down. Thirdly, Peter, you are denying the significance of the cross. Look at what Paul writes in verse 19. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. The Lord Jesus came, He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all righteousness. He paid the penalty for me having broken the law in full. Therefore, I have fulfilled the law. I have died to the law because I am now one with Christ through faith. And now I live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. He says in verse 20, it's a legal death. 
Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Peter, you are denying the significance of the cross. And fourthly, Peter, you are saying, Peter, brother, this, this, is, this is what your actions imply. This is what you're saying. You are saying that Christ died to no purpose. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, if the works of the law contributed one iota to our justification, Christ died for no purpose. Absolutely no purpose. We know Peter repented. Undoubtedly, he was a little red-faced, right? A little embarrassed. He probably had a few apologies to make to his fellow Gentile believers. Paul, you're right. I know all of that. And I am now, I, I, I for just for a time there, was acting in a manner completely inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which champions and proclaims and announces the sole sufficiency of Christ. Now, last week, if you were here, you'll recall, I hope you recall, Last week, based on these verses, we considered that important phrase, justified in Christ. Our opening psalm, Psalm 24, wasn't it? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Just answer that question right now in your mind. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may dwell in the presence of the Almighty? There is only one answer. Jesus Christ. You need to be one with Jesus Christ if you want to ascend that holy hill. If you want to dwell in the heavenly temple of the Lord. If you want to be accepted, welcomed, received by God. You and I, we must be one with Christ. We must be justified in Him. And Martin Luther, that old reformer, he put it so well. As he, as he mused upon justification, he declared, Oh, the Christian's sins are no longer his. They are Christ's. The Christian's sins are no longer his. They are Christ's. My trespasses, my sin, my iniquity laid in its entirety. Upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he hung upon Calvary's cross. It's why we sing. I trust you still sing this one. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. It's only half of the equation. It's only half of the equation when it comes to what it means to be justified in Christ. Yes, the Christian sins are no longer his. They are Christ's. Luther goes on to say, now Christ's righteousness belongs not only to him. It belongs to the Christian. But now God sees us in Christ. And he clothes us with his perfect obedience. And he declares us not guilty, but just in his sight. Because Christ's righteousness is now reckoned to be ours. It is why we sing the terrors 
of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's, listen carefully, my Savior's obedience and blood, not just the blood, folks. My Savior's obedience and blood, my Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. That is what it means to be justified in the Lord Jesus. And now today we're going to return to our text. And we're going to focus in on another little phrase. It's found there in verse 20. And try to unpack and unravel and get our minds around what it means to be crucified with Christ. And so just follow along as I read this verse again for us. Many of you probably memorized this as children. A verse undoubtedly very familiar to most of us. Here it is. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if you take a little hammer and you just kind of tap that verse, it breaks apart into five bite-sized chunks. just kind of naturally breaks apart into these five pieces. And so just look at these five pieces quickly with me. Here's the first. I have been crucified with Christ, declares the Apostle Paul. Well, that's, that's a bit puzzling. Paul wasn't on the cross when the Lord Jesus died. Paul didn't die when the Lord Jesus died. What's he referring to? It was our scripture reading from Romans chapter 6. What did we hear as we read that word together and just meditated upon it? Paul there says what? Those who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into what? His death. We've been baptized as Christians into Christ, meaning we have been made one with Him through faith. And because we are now one with Him through faith, His death is our death. It is a legal death. It is a judicial death. Paul knows it. It's why he can confidently, therefore, declare, I have been crucified with Christ. Well, yes, here I am living. I'm writing this thing. I don't mean I physically died. I mean that in God's reckoning, in God's account, because I am in this indissoluble union with the Lord Jesus Christ, his judicial death is mine. I have legally died. When Christ died, I died. Second thing he says is this. It's a logical inference. It is no longer I who live. Well, it's me. I haven't lost my personality. I'm still Paul. What does he mean? He means, well, everything I was in Adam. My entire identity as to what it was to be a fallen creature, a fallen human being in Adam, and, and my self-love, which corrupted every word, every thought, every deed, all of it is now judicially dead. It hung there with the Lord Jesus Christ in God's reckoning. And as the Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for it all. And therefore, as I died judicially, it therefore means, well, I'm no longer the same person. It is no longer I who live. That old man has been crucified. And then look at what he says thirdly. But Christ. Who now lives in me. I have a new identity. I'm no longer in Adam. 
I am in Christ. I am no longer part of the old man, all that it meant to be a fallen creature in Adam. I am now a new creature in Christ Jesus. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived in submission to the Holy Spirit while he was here on earth, he has ascended on high. He continues to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Father now sends the Spirit through the Son into my life, whereby there is now this new principle in me, love for God, love for the Lord Jesus And a desire to live for Christ. Therefore it leads to the fourth little section in this verse. The life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith. In the son of God. The life I now live in the flesh. Yes you see the old man was crucified with the Lord Jesus. Judicially. But you know what? The old man is alive and well. The flesh is alive and well. You know it brother. You know it sister. I know that nothing in me right now, even as a Christian, I know that nothing in me, there's nothing good in me. And I know that I still struggle with that principle of self-love. And I know I am still riddled with sin. And yet I have died judicially, that old man dead. I am now in God's reckoning alive in Christ. The Holy Spirit has been given to me. And now I am called to live a life of unbelievable tension. Paul's going to get there in chapter 5. It's the battle between what? The flesh and the spirit. It is this battle between this, this principle, love of self. Me, myself, and I. Where I'm at the center of all things thinking that the entire universe revolves around me. And now this new principle that is alive and well within me, love for God and a desire to know his will and do his will. And now I am called to live this life of tension in the flesh. How? I live by faith. I fix my eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And what in particular do I fix my eyes upon? It brings us to the fifth little bite-sized chunk in verse 20. Who loved me. And gave himself for me. He loved me. And gave himself for me. Uh, many, 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 many years ago, um, this little uh, three-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed cutie, climbed, climbed up into her mother's lap, my wife, Allison. She climbed up into her mother's lap and got real close, nose to nose, fixed her gaze intently upon her and declared, I love you as big as Walmart and everything in it. (laughs) My wife was an emotional basket case, as you can imagine, just, just gripped her to the core. I love you as big as Walmart and everything in it from the lips of a three-year-old. She's now 22. If she were to get up close to her mom today and look her in the eyes and say, I love you, as big as Walmart and everything in it, Allison would not be nearly as impressed, would she? As a matter of fact, she might be a little insulted by that. It's all about perspective. Here, here before us, we have the greatest attestation, the greatest declaration, the greatest manifestation known of love, known to humanity. And here it is. He loved us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we know it? He gave himself for us. Oh, the Father loves his people. It is an eternal love. 
And the Father has revealed His love for us by sending His Son in time to manifest that love. In becoming sin for us and bearing the curse for us upon Calvary's cross. And now the Son has sent the Spirit in time into our hearts. You go to Galatians 4, you read it there, that when the fullness of time had come. Yes, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons, what has the Son done? He has sent the Spirit into our hearts by whom we now cry what? Abba, Father. And so you see, the Father loves us. It's very Trinitarian. The Father loves us. The Son reveals the Father's love. And the Spirit seals the Father's love to us. And so Dad's walking someday out there on the back 40. And he's got little three-year-old Johnny with him. And little Johnny knows his dad loves him. He knows his dad provides for him. He knows his dad protects him. He knows his dad has to discipline him once in a while. And there is no doubt, no question in little three-year-old Johnny's mind that his dad loves him. But unexpectedly, all of a sudden, dad picks up little Johnny, puts him in that bear hug whereby Johnny can barely breathe, fixes his gaze upon him and whispers to him, I love you, son. Has Johnny just acquired any new knowledge? Has he acquired anything new? No. But he now knows the love of his father in a way that is not merely cerebral. It has become real and alive to him. That is the Spirit of God. It is the Father, it is the Son, and it is the Holy Spirit. And here in our text, the emphasis is upon this revelation, this manifestation of this divine love that he gave himself for me. He gave Himself to redeem me, ransom me. He gave Himself to deliver me from the consequences of my sin. He gave Himself lavishly, bountifully upon Calvary's cross. And the life I now live, I live by faith. I fix the eyes of faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And the theme of my song, The meditation of my heart now becomes this love-fueled obedience. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It is this simple. Are you ready for this? This verse, in very simple terms, concise terms, unlocks for us the key to the Christian life. I'm not saying you don't need to read any more books. I love the book giveaway, by the way. I'm not saying don't attend more conferences and everything else. No Bible intake. So important. But you know, friends, it really is this simple. The key to the Christian life. Are you ready? Here it is. The key to the Christian life. Number one, believing that Christ loved me. And gave himself for me. Believing it. Number two. Believing. Judicially. I have been crucified with Christ. Thirdly. Seeing myself daily. Hanging on the cross. And fourthly. Acting like it. That is the key to the Christian life.
There you have it. I will repeat it. The key to the Christian life is believing that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Love fueled obedience. Just this this impetus for all of life, this divine love. Believing that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Believing that judicially I have been crucified with Christ. Seeing myself daily hanging on the cross and acting accordingly. And let me get this right down to the 24-7 for us. All right? Right down to the 24-7. What does that mean for our sins? What does it mean for your struggle with lust, greed, envy, malice, bitterness? What does it mean for our, our impatience? Intolerance. What does it mean for our unguarded words and unfiltered thoughts? It means this. Daily, I remind myself, I believe that the Lord Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. I believe that I have been crucified with Christ. I see me, that old man, hanging upon the cross. And I understand that the Lord Jesus is now calling me to act like it. It's what we saw in Romans chapter 6. We are to consider ourselves what? Dead to sin. You're not dead to sin. I know you're not. And I'm not dead to sin in our experience. And, 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 and the, the issues we struggle with and the temptations we face daily, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. We are to recognize that judicially, We are dead men walking. And we are to hear God say to us, when my son, the Lord Jesus, died upon the cross, as far as I'm concerned, you died judicially. It's done. And when the Lord Jesus rose again, you rose again. And now I have welcomed you into my family. And now what I'm calling you to do is simply this, simply this. Act like it when it comes to our sins. And it is before the cross of Christ living daily in the shadow of that cross as our love grows for he who first loved us that we thereby find that motivation to put to death those sins and temptations that still assail us. What does this mean for our desires? That's a great question. Closely linked to the first question. What does it mean for our sins? But a little more specific What does it mean for our desires? We live in the age of expressive individualism, don't we? You familiar with that terminology? It is the heartbeat of Western society. Expressive individualism. Whereby most people today believe what? Their feelings are the highest authority. And there is no objective reality beyond what they feel. Their emotions. And so everything is defined good, bad, true, error on the basis of what? My feelings. Well, what are my strongest feelings? Sexual desires. Therefore, my sexual desires become what in our day and age? Well, if my feelings are the highest form of reality, therefore my sexual desires are the highest form of reality. And if the sexual desires are the highest form of reality, that means I'm basically what? A compilation of my sexual desires, and that becomes my identity. 
And now we're inundated in our day and age with sexual promiscuity that is, it just boggles the mind. Why? Because people have told by giving free reign to their feelings, which are essentially their identity, they are expressing themselves and therefore being true to themselves. No, my friend, we are not the sum total of our fallen sexual desires. We are human beings created in the very image of God Almighty. And we're fallen creatures. And as Christians, we're now being renewed in the image of Christ. And our identity is not determined by our feelings. Our identity is determined by Christ. And what Christ says of us in his word. And I remember that Christ hasn't called me to indulge my feelings. Christ hasn't called me to indulge my appetites. Christ hasn't called me to indulge my desires. He's called me to deny self. Take up my cross and follow him. And I do that by believing that he loved me and gave himself for me. I do that by recognizing I have died. I have died judicially upon Calvary's cross. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I see that old man hanging upon the cross. And now, by God's grace, I seek to act in a manner that is consistent with who God says I am in Christ. Therefore, a manner that is consistent with God's word. And I'm not going to paint some rosy picture here. That's a lifelong battle. That's a lifelong struggle. That is the flesh and the spirit. That is the tension of living in a fallen world, us being fallen creatures. But it is what we have been called to do. We have been called to deny self, not indulge self. Deny self. Take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean for the choices I make? How does this, how does this key to the Christian life shape how I use my money? My time, my gifts, my talents. My abilities. Well, I believe that Christ loved me, gave himself for me. I believe that I have been crucified with Christ. I see myself hanging on the cross. I act accordingly, which means what? My great prayer becomes the prayer of the Lord Jesus. My Father, not my will be done, but yours. When it comes to my stewardship of time, and finances, and vocation, and family, and every other facet of life. What does it mean for my opinions? Anybody here got any opinions? Nope, not in this crowd. What happens when someone disagrees with our opinions? Happened to me once. More than once, on more than one occasion. What happens when someone differs from my view of things? Dare I go there? Oh, just briefly. What happens when I don't meet eye to eye with someone on the whole masks, vaccinations, and on and on and on and on and on it goes. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I believe it. I believe he loved me and gave himself for me. I'm dead. I'm a dead man walking. Judicially dead with the Lord Jesus. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I see myself hanging upon the cross. 
And the question I ask is this, what does it mean in this situation to act accordingly? What does it mean maybe just to keep my mouth shut once in a while? What does it mean maybe not to have to post absolutely every thought that runs through my head on Facebook or something like that? What does it mean just to accept others who maybe don't see things quite as I see them? Oh, well, what does the, the key to the Christian life mean when it comes to our opinions? What does it mean when it comes to the world, the world in which we live? Characterized by perspectives, convictions, dreams, aspirations, and actions which make man the focus of everything. And God calls us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. I am a dead man walking. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This means I now think in a new way when it comes to this world. Who am I? It's a great question to ask once in a while. Who am I? What am I doing? What do I want? What do I value? What do I desire? What or whom do I esteem? And is to bring all these things within the shadow of the cross and to recognize we are to act in a manner that is consistent with our identity in the Lord Jesus, which is what? We died. When he died, we died. He rose again, we rose again. The old man dead and buried. And we are now a new creation in the Lord Jesus. Uh, what does this mean for offenses? What does it mean when people are selfish, unfair, abrupt, or insensitive? What does it mean when you've got to get from one coast of the States to the other on a plane nowadays? Ooh, that's a great one. And the whole baggage ordeal and getting through security and everything else and flights are canceled, rescheduled. What does it mean? When people are unfair or abrupt, what does it mean when things don't go exactly as I want them to go? How do I respond? Do I take offense? Do I seek revenge? Do I get snarky, tenacious, sarcastic, bombastic? No. I believe that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. I believe that I have been crucified with Christ. I see myself hanging on the cross. And I act accordingly. What does it mean for my comforts? The world tells us that our purpose is to play, collect stuff, and pursue a life of ease and comfort. We are told that personal gratification will make us happy. Lord Jesus says the exact opposite. Personal sacrifice, not personal gratification, is the key to happiness. Living a crucified life following a crucified Savior is the pathway to blessedness. One more. What does this mean for afflictions? What does this mean in seasons of suffering, seasons of loss, grief, sorrow? It means we look to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who suffered humbly, suffered willingly, suffered lovingly. And we remember that the cross is not only the way the Lord Jesus triumphed. Friend, this is a hard lesson right here. It is the way we triumph. The cross precedes the crown. 
I believe the Lord Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. I see myself hanging upon the cross because I have been crucified with him. And now by God's grace, I seek to act accordingly. Crucified with Christ. There you have it, my friends. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with him. It's the present tense. It's an ongoing reality. I have been crucified with him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us wisdom for these things. We do come as dependent children and acknowledge our inability, acknowledge our weakness, acknowledge our proneness to wander, and are so thankful for your steadfast love, so thankful for your faithfulness, so thankful for your endurance, long-suffering toward us. We pray this day that your word might be made alive by your Holy Spirit, that you might implant it deep within our hearts for any unbeliever present. Our Father, we intercede on their behalf. We pray that by your Spirit you would convict them of sin and convince them of the truth and show them the glory of Christ. Show them the glory of the gospel and show them that great hope which is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And for your people, may we be encouraged and edified this day, strengthened in the faith, and may we be compelled by your love for us to love you. And may this be evident in word and in thought and in deed. For your presence among us, we thank you. For entrusting your word to us, we also give your thanks. And we offer up our praise and adoration in Christ's most worthy name. Amen.